Morning. How you guys doing? Good. I'm glad. We're going to be in Hosea chapter 1. If you got a Bible, go ahead and open up there. Our lectionary reading from the Old Testament for this week is from Hosea chapter 1. Some of you might know we're spending just a couple of months in the summer um, studying through the lectionary, just participating with the, the global church. A lot of the high church, more liturgical churches use the lectionary, which is the church calendar that designates readings and scriptures for each week. Um, so we're choosing to participate with hundreds and thousands of Christians all over the world for a couple of months and study what global, globally Christians are looking at. Um, we're doing this really until the, the middle of September, and I don't have a lot of details about this because we're still working on the details, but we're going to do a series for six weeks starting in September. The series is going to be called Storied, and series is a bad word for what we're doing because really it's going to be like a church emphasis, and we're bringing back Andy Squires. If you haven't seen that on social media yet, he's coming back as part of this. We've got a lot of exciting stuff. We're bringing in speakers. We're really going to push our creative boundaries in this. I can't wait for it, and I can't wait to tell you the rest of the details, but I just want to tell you this. From the middle of September to the week before Halloween, the Sunday before Halloween, you're not going to want to miss a week because we believe that this is going to be a significant moment. We think this idea is from the Lord, and I cannot wait to see. I can't wait to tell you the rest of the details. We just, we don't have them in a communicable form yet, but we've got the ideas. But I can't wait to tell you. I hope that you're excited. That's coming in September, but we're in the lectionary until then. So Hosea chapter 1, we're going to start reading in verse 1. We're going to read the whole first chapter of Hosea. It says this. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, son of Beeri, during the reign of Uzziah. Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and during the reign of Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, king of Israel. When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, Go, marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her. For like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. So he married Gomer, daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. Then the Lord said to Hosea, call him Jezreel, because I will soon punish the house of Jehu for the massacre at Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of Israel, and in that day I will break Israel's bow in the valley of Jezreel. I want to pause here for a second. This has nothing to do with the sermon this morning, but this is a verse that sometimes when people are looking at scripture and they're really examining, are there places that conflict, are there reasons why we can't trust scripture, people point to this verse, because there's a seeming conflict in this verse, and that's because in In 2 Kings chapter 10, we read about the beginning of the house of Jehu and the massacre at Jezreel. And what happens is Jehu is called by God through the prophet Elisha to to, um, unseat the reigning king and queen, Ahab and Jezebel. They are evil people, and God says, I want you to get them out of office, I want you to eliminate their line, and I want you to eliminate the worship of Baal. It's a really violent story. There's a lot of violence in the Old Testament that we have to grapple with. If you've got questions about the violence in the Old Testament, ask those questions. I would love to talk about that. That's not what we're talking about this morning, but let's keep that on the back burner. We will definitely come back to that at some point. But Jehu does this. He kills Ahab, he kills Jezebel, he kills um, everybody in the line of Ahab. And then God says, you did exactly what I told you to do. That was good. But in this verse, it seems like God is now going to punish Jehu and his descendants, the line of Jehu, which would be the kings that were his sons and grandsons that came after him. And it sounds like God has now changed his mind and he's going to punish Jehu for what he commanded him to do. But when we actually read the Hebrew of this verse, 
in the original language, the word punish can also be translated visit or appoint. So in the original language, this verse could just as likely, in fact, more likely would read something like, I will appoint upon the house of Jehu the massacre of Jezreel the massacre in the valley of Jezreel, which what Hosea is saying, what the Lord is saying through Hosea, is that Jehu upset Ahab, but he became just as evil as Ahab. So now God has to bring upon Jehu's line what he brought upon Ahab, because what we read in the rest of the story of Second Kings is that Jehu actually uses the name of God to get power and facilitates corruption. He's willing to use whatever name he can to gain power. So if he has to worship the Lord to reign, then he'll worship the Lord, but he still serves his own devices, worships idols, and, and, and facilitates corruption and violence and devastation among his people. So God's saying... You did it, and now it has to be done to you. Does that make sense? All right, now here's why I say that. The Bible can handle your questions. Like I said, this is not part of the sermon this morning. This is just an aside. The Bible can handle your questions. When you find something in Scripture that says that you think that doesn't make sense, sometimes our default setting is to push that aside, to pretend like it doesn't exist, or to try to just rationalize it. The Bible can handle your questions. For the last 500 years, Scripture has received the highest and most intense level of criticism from any other historical document. There has been no historical work that has been criticized at the level that the Bible has, and it still stands. We do not have to be afraid of the questions that we bring to Scripture. The Bible can handle it. Ask the question, wrestle, let's study together, because the Bible has consistently been proven true, which means in our pursuit of truth, we don't have to fear questioning Scripture. Amen? All right, let's keep reading. Gomer conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. Then the Lord said to Hosea, Hosea, call her Lo Ruhamah, which means not loved. For I will no longer show love to Israel, that I should at all forgive them. Yet I will show love to Judah, and I will save them, not by bow, sword, or battle, or by horses and horsemen, but I, the Lord their God, will save them. After she had weaned Lo Ruhamah, Gomer had another son. Then the Lord said, call him Lo Ami, which means not my people. For you are not my people, and I am not your God. Yet the Israelites will be like the sand on the seashore, which cannot be measured or counted. In the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called children of the living God. The people of Judah and the people of Israel will come together. They will appoint one leader and will come up out of the land, for great will be the day of Jezreel. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you that a text that honestly seems violent and hard to wrestle with still contains your character and your truth. And God, we ask that we would see who you are this morning, that any of our ideas or thoughts. God, I ask that the the concerns and the frustrations and the things weighing on our mind from this week that we brought into the room with us, that we would lay those down and we would hear from you. Any of my thoughts or my ideas, let them be forgotten. But let your word, your name, and your truth be remembered. We love you, Jesus. Amen. Uh, If I were going to describe to you the primary difference between my wife and I's personalities, the best way to do that would be describing how we interact with rules. (laughs) Um, If you remember Pirates of the Caribbean, 
Yeah, okay. So you'll get this. Um, My wife views rules like a code to live by, right? They are the code. That is what you do. There is right, there is wrong. Those are the rules. I view the rules more like guidelines, right? Like they're recommendations. That's probably the right thing to do. But you know, there are loopholes. Um, My wife and I both played sports in high school. If you play sports with Jen, there are rules to the game. And the rules are there so that you play the game the right way, so that we all can have fun. Because there's a right thing to do, and there is a wrong thing to do. And this, we play safe. We all have a good time. Everybody is looked out for. And why in the world would you play the game if you're not going to play the game right? Some of you are there. Yeah. When I play sports, to me, the rules are for the referee to enforce if he can catch me breaking them. (laughs) And I'm sneaky. Uh, (laughs) Have any of you ever, uh, any of you ever like done the uh, the bargaining with the rules, where you're like, you know what, if I break the rule, this happens, but I think that's worth it once. Like, my my son does. My my son has this. Uh, we have a rule in our house about around dinner time, where we say you can't have a snack later if you don't finish your dinner. Which to me makes sense. I'm 30 and I want a snack. Every six-year-old wants ice cream before bed. But my son, like twice a week, will just look at me halfway through the meal and say, I don't want a snack tonight. He just has this look on his face like I called your bluff, you punk. Like, there is nothing worse as a parent than getting outsmarted by a tiny thing you made. It's just, (laughs) it's not great. Or maybe you've been driving and you were allegedly speeding and you... You started doing the math about how much your insurance is going to go up if you get another speeding ticket. So you decided five under was maybe the better, better speed, right? <laughs> Rules and punishment have an interesting interplay. And punishment is actually a pretty good deterrent from rules. And punishment, interestingly enough, and as uncomfortable as this, this is, is a consistent theme in Scripture. In the New Testament, in Hebrews, God says he disciplines those that he loves. In the Old Testament, in Leviticus, in parts of Exodus, in parts of Deuteronomy, we see the law, and God institutes laws, and he institutes punishments, because the punishments are there to prevent the breaking of the law. They inhibit us from doing the thing that we're not supposed to do. They are prevention measures. In, in this story that we just read, we read about punishment. God is punishing a king who is the representative of the people. In fact, he's punishing a line of kings who are the representative of the people. They are the stewards entrusted to establish the way of God among the people, but they have been selfish, and God calls them to account. He punishes them for that. And then God uses this very uncomfortable, strange metaphor where he tells his prophet, I want you to marry a woman that you know will not be faithful. Some scholars think she was a prostitute. We don't really know for sure, but we know that she was adulterous. She was promiscuous, that she was not going to be faithful. And God says she she is not going to be faithful just like Israel has been like an unfaithful wife to me. And what's interesting about that analogy is that Hosea is faithful, so legally he can bring punishment. Punishment is a preventative measure. Have you ever considered the difference between punishment and consequences. Punishment is something that is done to you if you break a rule. Consequences is what happens if you do the dangerous thing. Punishment is something that is done to us. 
consequences is something that happens because of us. Now, that's an important difference. Because if my son, if we have a rule that says you can't play in the road, and if you go into the road, then I'm going to take TV away for a day because you were disobeying. The punishment and the consequences are different. The punishment actually is nothing compared to the consequences. The punishment is designed to keep him from running in the road, to dissuade him from experiencing the dangerous consequences of playing in the road because the consequences far outweigh the punishment. I don't want him at risk. I don't want him in a dangerous place. So I tell him, if you break this rule, you will be punished. Punishment is a teaching tool. Punishment is a preventative method to protect from consequences. In this story, we see both punishment and consequences. Now... If I had to guess, when we talk about punishment in the church, there are probably those of us here who hear this and immediately think, okay, God's going to punish me. God's trying to teach me something. We probably have memories. We probably have thoughts that spring to our mind immediately that say, oh, I know where this sermon is going. God's going to take this thing away from me because he's got a lesson to teach me. Interesting thing about punishment is that it's very, very good at preventing things at times for seasons. But punishment isn't a sustainable motivation. In the New Testament, in the book of 1 John, it's said like this. In the book of 1 John chapter 4, the author says, there is no fear in love because perfect love casts out fear because fear is connected to punishment. Another way to say it is fear is not a sustainable motivation. Fear is an important thing. And sometimes we preach sermons that's like, you're not supposed to be afraid. You should never be afraid. afraid. Check fear at the door and walk in faith. If there's a grizzly bear in the room, you should be afraid or you're dying, right? Fear is an important thing. Fear rescues us. Fear can save us. In fact, if I had to guess, there are probably some of us in the room who, you like me, have made decisions that needed to be made because of fear. Maybe you said, I will never have a drink again because you were afraid of what it would cost you if you didn't give up that thing. Maybe you said, I will never, I will have accountability software on my computer. I will go to AA. I will make a radical decision because I'm afraid of losing my job or I'm afraid of losing my family. Fear can actually motivate us to make a decision. Fear can be a really important rescuing tool. It's just not a consistent and sustainable motivation tool for the simple reason that if my motivation is fear, when I'm not afraid, I'm not motivated. If my motivation is punishment, then when there's no risk of punishment, there's no motivation for change. I think we all probably understand that especially in a parenting scenario, that part of the maturing process is moving past the fear of punishment into consequence-based decision-making. So in other words, the goal for my son is that someday he doesn't play in the road 
because he understands the consequences of playing in the road, and he can make an informed decision. I no longer have to punish him to keep him safe. The entire goal of this system is to form us so that we are no longer dependent on punishment, so that we're no longer motivated by fear, so that someday my son can say, I know that the road is dangerous, but someday maybe he can make an informed decision not based on punishment and fear to say this road is actually very safe because we're in a neighborhood on a cul-de-sac, so I can put my basketball goal right here without great risk because the fear of punishment allows for nuance and healthy decision-making. When the fear of punishment is removed, it allows for nuance and healthy decision-making. This is the goal. But based on my own experience as a human, as a follower of Jesus, and based on my experience doing ministry for 10 years now, what I have observed is that the majority of us as followers of Jesus never move past fear of punishment in our relationship with the Lord. And the evidence happens when we sin. Our our response to a consistent struggle or temptation or battle in our life you know, we react a little bit like a dog who's been hit on the nose too many times. You know, you move your hand too quick and they wince. We see that reaction in our soul when we go to the Lord in prayer. God, please don't. God, I, I know I said I wouldn't do it again. But please don't, ta- please don't take it away. Please don't. I know, I, I promised I would change and I didn't. Please don't take my job away. God, I know, I know I'm scared and I'm struggling and I'm doubting and I'm, I know I keep falling into this temptation, but please, God, please just don't take it away. Please, I promise I'll do better. I promise I'll change this time. I promise it won't happen again, God. And fear motivates us to change for a little bit until we change just enough for the fear to go away. And then when there's a bigger fear that forces us to cope again, when there's a different pressure, this is the story of the history of the people of Israel. They would follow the ways of God and they would turn away because something would offer more comfort, something would offer less fear, something would offer a better solution, something would offer different punishment, something would, some other God would say, I won't punish you for the things you want to do, so they would turn away. The fear would go away, so their motivation would go away. And then God would gently bring them back. Punishment and fear can affect change for a moment. But the thing that fear can't do is change a heart. See, that's what's so significant about this story. Because this story seems like fear and punishment. In fact, the first time I read this story, I was like, God, this seems a little heavy-handed. I don't think you're supposed to say you're not going to forgive them anymore. I, don't, I think that sounds, that sounds counter to your character, God. And I especially thought it was weird that he named the kids those things. Like, I just can't imagine a 13-year-old girl being in a healthy place when her friends realize her name means not loved. Like, that's not going to be a good thing. And it seems, it seems really harsh. It seems very harsh. It seems like this analogy, even, that God's calling Hosea into is a dangerous thing and something that shouldn't be put on the children until I realize that there's actually a deep irony in this passage. The irony in this passage is that, that her name means not loved, but she has a faithful father who will prove her name a lie 
every time he shows love to her. In other words, other people might call her not loved, but her father will be a faithful presence in her life. Prove every time her younger brother, whose name means not my people, goes out in public with his dad, everybody can see he has people. It's an irony. See, God is, is punishing and he's speaking of consequences. He's showing the picture of, he's saying, do you see where these decisions lead? Do you see that you are eventually going to run away to the point that I I can't offer you forgiveness because you don't want it anymore. You won't let me. Do you see where this leads? Do you see why I've set a boundary in place for you? That's why David said the boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places because he learned to make consequence-based decisions instead of fearing punishment. And then this, this chapter ends with something that's just remarkable. Because if fear of punishment is the goal, God does exactly what he shouldn't do. Okay, if you're going to scare somebody straight, if this is like MTV scared straight that we're watching, the last thing that you do is give somebody an out. The last thing that you tell a teenager who's making decisions that are going to get them put in jail is, hey, it's going to be okay, don't worry. Right? The, the thing that you do if you're scaring someone out of their bad decisions is you say this decision. You do this one more time and it's over. Next time you're out of the house. Next time you're gone. You're about to make a decision that you'll never recover from. You scare them into change. This is something, just for the record, this has become like the bread and butter of the American church for the last 200 years. Because fear is easier than love. That's important. Fear is easier than love. It's a lot easier to say, if you touch that substance, if you go to that place, if you don't boycott that organization, they'll get your kids, than it is to say, let's move in love and trust the work of the Spirit, which is why we have, and I I say this as humbly as I can, because I have preached these sermons and been this guy, but we wind up with people who would never, ever touch in that, who would never walk into a tobacco store, who would never have a drink, who would boycott an organization at a heartbeat, but we have secret porn habits and we have bitterness in our heart and we're a little bit racist and we, un- we hold on to unforgiveness for generations because we have let fear be our motivation and fear can change our actions, but it can't change our hearts. So we'll never do that thing. We'll just do all the other things that we can keep secret so we don't get punished about. Because that's what fear does. It says if no one notices, you won't get in trouble. And it keeps us stuck in the same thing until somebody notices and we promise to not, and we promise to change. Then we wind up in the same place. But do you see what God says? He gives this prediction. These are the consequences. He gets this, this is where you're going. But then he says, but it's going to be okay. He says, in the place that you were called, not my people, you will be called again, children of the living God. He says, Israel is going to be destroyed, but actually there's going to be another king that unites Israel and Judah again, who brings the unity that you've always longed for. He actually references the promises that God made to Israel from the beginning. He says, you are going to be numbered like the sands of the seashore. Why? Because I will keep every promise I made, no matter the consequences. God gives them an out, and there's a reason for that, because punishment can change your actions, but it can't change your heart. The only force in human history that can change the heart of a person is unconditional love. The only thing 
that can actually lead to change in someone's heart is realizing that they are unconditionally, completely, no-holds-barred, loved. Do you understand that you were loved, are loved, and will be loved, and it has nothing to do with what you do? Listen, in a room like this, there are inevitably people who are thinking, you don't know what I did. And you're right, I don't, but I know what God did. Which means it applies to you. It applies. You are loved. Your status in eternity is forgiven. Forgiven for the past, forgiven for the present, forgiven for the future. Can I tell you something? There is fear even as a preacher in preaching a message like this. Because fear is easier. Sometimes I worry when I preach something like this, like what if I tell people they're loved and then they keep living in sin and they face the consequences? But the thing is, the only thing that will transform your heart is when you realize that in the moment of your sin, God was whispering his love to you and saying, this doesn't change anything. Listen, there are consequences. There are consequences. But it's only when you realize that the punishment was meted out on the cross. The punishment was meted out on the cross. The consequence of separation from God was dealt with on the cross and in the resurrection. It's only when you realize that, when you realize that you are completely loved, completely loved, What that means is that that area of your life that you think no one will love you for is you are loved. In the midst of it, in spite of it, no matter what, you are loved. It's only when you realize that that you can free your mind from the fear of punishment and actually examine consequences. It's only when you get to that point that you will be able to say, you know what, I don't actually think that I want pornography. I think that that would bring harm to my life. Not because I'm afraid God's mad at me, but because I see the consequences and I'm able to make an informed decision. That's freedom. That's freedom. Well, listen, as this comes to a close, we we need to see where this story goes. This isn't in the lectionary reading for today, but we're going to talk about it anyway because the story of Hosea and Gomer has a conclusion. Gomer... Leaves. She does exactly what God said she was going to do. She is adulterous. Once again, some scholars think she returned to prostitution. Some scholars think she just became, a, became adulterous. We don't know. What we do know for sure is that she started to incur debt. She actually incurred punishment for her actions. She, she broke faithfulness, and this is incredibly important. She broke faithfulness, and Hosea had every legal right to leave. He had every moral right to leave. He had every right to punish her. But the story says in Hosea chapter 3 that Hosea went to her. Now that's important because she didn't come to him. He went to her in the place of her sin. He went to her and he paid the debt that her sin had incurred. He paid the punishment and eliminated the consequence of their separation. And he says, I will be faithful to you and you will be faithful to me forever. And then he says this, I am acting on behalf of God because then it goes on to say that Israel will be away for a while, but God will buy her back. 
Because Hosea is showing us that he was showing Israel and he was showing Gomer, this is what God is like. God is not the angry person in the sky holding up a hand to punish you. He's the one whispering in your ear, this doesn't change a thing. This doesn't change a thing. And you have to see, if you want freedom, if you want freedom, and this is a scary concept because fear is easier. It would be easier for you to just live in fear and live in a fear cycle for the rest of your life. This is hard and it's uncomfortable. But if you want to find freedom, you've got to replace that picture because we all have that picture in our mind. We remember the moment that we regret. We remember the thing we did last night, last week, 10 years ago. And we've got this picture of God with an angry face, ready to punish us, ready to teach us the lesson. And every time we think of that memory or we think of those memories or we think of that habit, what we see is God with his hand up and we flinch a little. And if we want to find freedom, we've got to replace that picture. You have got to see God sitting next to you when you've got your laptop open at 2 a.m. hoping no one's around. You've got to see him sitting next to you with his arm around you saying, I still love you. I still love you. You've got to see him in the moment, in the place of sin saying, no, I still love you. I still love you. If you want freedom from that thing, you have to see that he loves you in the midst of that thing. Listen, when you are so angry that you want to choke someone and you don't think forgiveness can ever enter your heart and you are bitter and you've got hatred, you have got to see God with you in that moment, not angry, not trying to talk you off a ledge, whispering in your ear saying, I still love you. I still love you. I still love you. When your hands shake because you want the bottle or you want the pill or you want the thing again or you want that secret addiction that's, you know, culturally okay, when that thing starts to hit you again, you have got to see God whispering in your ear, I still love you. I still love you. I still love you. This doesn't change a thing. Because when you're afraid of punishment, you're going to want the thing you cope with. But when you realize that you are completely loved, then you realize that there's not that much to cope about. That you're loved you are loved you are loved this is the path to freedom listen it doesn't it doesn't soften that sin breaks things in our life it just means that the brokenness has no bearing on his love some of us think that god like changed his mind at jesus but that's because they haven't read the old testament very well because god has always been loving he has always been loving he has always been the one saying just repent i'll forgive you i'll take you back i'm right here i've never left i'm not gonna leave That's who God is. That is who God is. If you want freedom, it only comes when you realize that you are loved, that you are completely, completely loved. It's the only way. Let me pray for you. Jesus. Remind me that you love me. Remind me that you completely and intimately and totally love me. God, remind each of us that you loved us before, during, and after the mistake. That you loved us before, during, and after the sin. God, give us the picture of Jesus on the cross saying, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they are doing. Give us the picture of Jesus forgiving his murderers while they were murdering him. 
because his love is not based on our actions. And the only way we find freedom is by embracing that we are completely loved. God, I ask that every chain of shame and fear would be broken. God, we thank you. We thank you for the decisions that were made to rescue us from something that was killing us. But God, we ask that fear would not weigh over our heads. It wouldn't become our motivation forever. God, we ask that you would free us from being motivated by fear and punishment so that we can walk in intimacy with you and we can objectively see the goodness of the life that you've called us to rather than living in fear of what you're going to do to us if we fall god we know that it was done on the cross and that we are fully loved whisper that to us now as we worship that we are loved that we are loved we love you jesus but we love you because you first loved us amen let's stand and worship together